This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. We're going to talk about British Columbia's organ donation system on the show today, which right now is an opt-in system, right? Because if you want to donate any of your organs after you die, you have to indicate that. You have to give consent. You've got to um, opt in. Should we have an opt-out system instead? In other words, it'd be like negative option billing. If you don't opt out and you die, you would automatically donate your organs. Brand new poll in British Columbia says nearly two-thirds of us here in BC would like that system to be opt-out instead of opt-in. So that's our hot question of the day. Would you support an opt-out organ donor registry, would you say, yes, this would save lives, or no, you can't assume that people would consent to giving their organs? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find it. At CKNW on Twitter. Call me on the buzz line, too, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. All right, we're also keeping an eye on Oppenheimer Park today. It's moving day, 6 p.m. tonight. That is the deadline for the campers to vacate the tent city down there. Our on-air contributor, Claire Allen, has been talking to one of the residents down there. His name is Jason McMillan. Have a listen. Today is the day that they are going to be evicting people from the tent. What's your plan? Well, my plan is that they got us a house, some housing, so uh, yeah, we're moving into an apartment. Oh, great! So you found um, they do have housing for you. They told they you. They do so, yeah. Do you yeah. know like what type of housing? Or are you still? Is it still sight unseen? It's uh, BC housing. We've lived in the building before, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, when BC housing got us housing a few years back, we actually lived in the same building. So, what led you, if you don't mind me asking, to being down here in the park? Is it, uh, well, did you not like the housing? Well, no, I mean, we we move around a lot, eh? Uh, we just came back from Alberta about four or five months ago. So, uh, yeah, it was... So you didn't have housing for the past couple months? And you were just yeah, here? that's right. We uh, we came out and we were we were prepared to get housing and all that. But, you know, here it's... Uh, everything's got to go through credit checks and this and that. And mm-hmm. well, if they don't like the way you look or you come from the wrong side of the tracks... You know, everything is about, uh, you know, uh, not racist, but stereotypical people, you know. And so what do you think about the park board and the police effort, well, the decision to evict people from the park? How do you feel about that? Well, I don't think it's right. I mean, they've got a, I mean, homelessness is, is not something they're going to fix overnight. So, I mean, they should have a, a designated area for, just for that, you know. I mean, it's, you know, they got lots of land around here. I mean, this is B.C., you know. All right, there's Jason McMillan talking to her own Claire Allen down at Oppenheimer Park. Uh, listen to this story here. This lady's name is Marilyn. She's also been living down in the tent city there. She's originally from Williams Lake. She told her own Nikki Reitmeyer a very tragic story and why she's so eager to leave the camp. I was eight months pregnant, homeless, when I first came to Vancouver. And uh, I lost my baby at eight months pregnant. And then they stuck me in Serena House where there is uh, mice, bed bugs, um, cockroaches, and I don't know what other kind of insects. But I got, I got sores all over my skin, holes in my skin from it. And I've asked them to spray my room 
and nothing's been done and like it's it's really bad there and i'm really looking for a new place people use drugs there i don't sell myself i've been five days clean now and i'm hoping to get a job and i can't do that in a place like this and my room is got thousands of uh cockroaches right now that's why i'm sleeping out here in the park it's just it's stressful so it's better to be out here in the fresh air even though it's, I mean, it's a, it's a tent city in a park. Yeah, and I'm a single girl sleeping by myself. Aren't you scared and to be here in the park as a, as a single woman who has already been through so much trauma to be sleeping yeah, in a city park? I got two tents. They were stolen on me. They were, people took everything on me. I have like barely any clothes, probably four sets of clothes. So I, I, I don't know what else to do. Like I keep crying and crying. And I'm pretty stressed right out. Like, I imagine it must be extremely stressful to be in a situation that you're in. Yeah, I've hit a few suicidal stages. I feel like I got nowhere to turn, no one to help me. And I'm like reaching out for help. And it just seems like no one's reaching back out to help me. Now I'm fighting to be clean and to change my life around to be able to get my girls back. You have two two children? Yes. Uh, uh, 17, she just graduated, and a four-year-old. Where are they now? Uh, with family right now until I can get stabled and stuff. Do they know where you are? Um... Yes, they do, but I haven't contacted them because I don't want them to see how I look right now. I'm ashamed of myself and vulnerable. So hopefully I get a place or something or get moved out of where I am so that I can get a job and be able to show that I can support my girls and be able to maybe move into something later on where I can have my girls with me, living with me. So if the city staff come today, if the police come tonight at 6 o'clock to evict the campers here, and they say that they have a place for you to go, will you go with them? Yes, I would. Yes, I would very much. I would be, like, very happy because I've gone through lots. I don't have... No family here, nothing. I've gone through lots. I don't have no mom. My mom passed away to cirrhosis to the liver. My brother passed away. High speed chase. My dad died in a house with heart attack. And my middle brother was run over by a drunk driver. So there's just me and my daughters left. And I grew up in a group home under ministry's care so and I don't want that for my girls I want them to be with me in a clean home where I can support them and I can provide for them with a job roof over their heads you want your daughters to have a better life than you lived yeah I want to give them everything I never had I don't think that there's any parent listening who who doesn't relate to that sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. 
hoping for a little better life. <laughs> so the first step to getting the health that you so badly want is hopefully tonight the city providing you with clean, safe housing. And from there, you think that you'll be able to get your life back on track? Yes, because I'm very strong-minded with very strong willpower and determined. You know, I had a job before, but things fell apart after I lost my baby. And I was stuck in that place and I, everything just got worse. But now I'm back on track and yeah, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get get out of here and get my life back on track for my kids. Wow, okay, that's a tough one to listen to. That's Marlon, wow, one of the residents of the tent city at Oppenheimer Park, talking to our own Nikki Reitmeyer. She's one of the people facing that eviction notice from the park, 6 p.m. tonight. Uh, that's the moving time for the residents of the tent city down there at the park. 6 p.m. is the day they've got the time they have to be out of there. You heard that Marlon said that she hopes that she'll be offered another place to live once that eviction deadline rolls around tonight. As we continue to focus on the tent city down at Oppenheimer Park, moving day today, 6 p.m. tonight is when the tent city is supposed to be shut down. People are supposed to move out on Monday. Residents got those eviction notices. Now, on that day, our own Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to a woman down there at the camp. Her name is Yesterday. Yesterday House is her name. It was an emotional conversation, and it gives you some insight into why people choose to camp down there instead of living in an SRO hotel room. If you missed it, here's how it sounded. I live in an SRO, and um, it's so hot in there. I leave my door open so the air can flow. So I was sleeping and someone came in my room and stole my, my cell phone, my uh, backpack, all my medication. I have two puffers. I got an EpiPen and I'm on medication for because um, I had like, pain here. Stole that. Everything in, I, I, I own, I carry around in my backpack. And um, so I told the staff, I went running down and told the staff. And uh, they looked at the camera and they found out who it was and made fun of me. They laughed at me. I've never been back. I haven't been back since. You know, that's supposed to be my safe. That's supposed to be my safe place. So I haven't been back since. And that's why I'm here. I don't do drugs. And that's true. I, I got no reason to lie. Sorry, it's really emotional. I can't afford, cell, a, you know, I can't afford another cell phone for a while. It, 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 it hurts. You know, they know who did it, and they looked at each other and laughed, and I've never been back since. I've been outside. If the city comes in today with the promise of moving people into social housing, would you go with them? If it's a good place. Like, we don't do drugs. 
They put us in places where people yell and scream in a hallway, all drugged up. And they even fight and stab each other in the SROs anyway. Like, there's really no difference, like, you know? But I haven't been back since, but these ladies did say they were going to help me. They did say they were going to move me somewhere. But I haven't seen them since. Do you trust them when they say that? I do because that lady had tears in her eyes when I told her what happened. So she believes me, you know. I have no reason to lie to anybody. I would have never lived this long if I was a liar. Especially being on the downtown east side. You lie, you're out. Everyone's going to know it, you know. Yesterday, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And I hope people hear, like, this is the truth. Like, there are people here that don't want to have a home. They they, want to shoot up. They want to stab each other, shoot each other. And there's people like me that would love to have a home. Like, I have all kinds of appliances you can stick into the wall. To cook, because I love to cook. I haven't cooked for over three... It's going to be a month, actually, that I haven't been over there. But, like, someone needs to care. You know, we used to work, you know. We paid our taxes. So that's pretty much... I can't help it. Okay, okay, a lot of people do care. You heard her say people need to care. A lot of CKNW listeners care. We've had an uh, outpouring of support after that tape originally aired Monday. One listener offered a cell phone as a donation to yesterday. Another woman, Carol Bullock from Cloverdale, offered two backpacks of supplies. Our own Nikki Reitmeyer drove out there to get pick up the donation. She talked to Carol why she was inspired. I was listening to the story that you were telling about yesterday, and I just thought, you know, she sounded like a nice lady that was just down on her luck, and if I had some stuff that might give her a helping hand, then I'd be happy to give it to her. So um, that's why. <laughs> I, I go quite often down to the Union Gospel and take clothes and stuff like that, a couple of times a year usually. So I don't know, I think if you've got excess, you might as well just give it to somebody that can use it. So that's why. <laughs> that's very sweet of you. So what are you donating yesterday today? Okay, so um, I've got a Roots uh what do you call it, backpack, and I filled it with all kinds of little things that she might like that she could use, and then I had another little, um, it's a bag like from a suitcase set, that's brand new as well, and I thought maybe somebody else could use it, perhaps her husband or somebody else. That's what I'm giving today, I wish I had a whole bunch more, Um, I've got a whole pile of clothes at home that I'm taking up to the women's shelter in White Rock, been going to do that for a week, but I haven't got around to it, so today might be the day. Okay, now we have an update for you. Our own Claire Allen was at Oppenheimer Park this morning, and about 20 minutes ago, she found yesterday, and here's how it sounded when she heard about our listeners' generosity. My name's Claire. What's your name? Yesterday House. You're yesterday? Yeah. My friend Nikki was talking to you. Oh. Yeah. And um, yesterday, my friend Nikki, she actually um, managed, some people heard your story on our station, and they were really moved by your situation. Yeah. And we have some stuff for you. Oh, yeah. Don't make me cry. Oh, no. Yesterday, I know people were really moved to hear about what happened when you were living in the SRO. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just, I mean, the story was awful. Yes. And, and a lot of our listeners were very moved, and they actually are look, 
Nikki's looking to get in contact with you because they provided, they sent along some donations. Oh, that's wonderful. And I know you're missing your cell phone yes. that was stolen. And uh, yeah, your story just really touched a lot of our listeners' hearts. Oh, that, um, I want to thank everybody. You know, I really appreciate everything. There's 6 p.m. tonight. That's the deadline for residents of that tent city to move out. They were issued eviction notices on Monday. And that's the day we first brought you the story of that lady down there, Yesterday House. Yeah, that's her name. She lives down there. Very moving interview that we first broadcast on Monday. We replayed it here a short time ago. And it triggered a reaction from CKNW listeners. They've been contacting us with offers of donations to help this woman get back on her feet. Our own Nikki Reitmeyer is on the way there. We'll hopefully be able to get the gifts to her later on in the show. In the meantime, let's hear more of uh, yesterday's conversation with Claire Allen, who spoke to her in the past hour. She opened up about the source of where a lot of her pain comes from. My daughter committed suicide, and I haven't been, haven't been the same. I'm so sorry yesterday. I haven't been the same ever since, you know? And this is why I drink. I know why I do what I do, you know? And I, I'm honest about it. I'll never turn to drugs. I see how, how evil drugs are. I'll never do that. The only drugs I do is marijuana. Like it was grown on the ground, you know? Yeah. Yesterday, how long ago did your daughter pass away? Two, two years. This will actually, at the end of this month, will be three years. Hard. I mean, dealing with grief is so difficult. I can't even imagine to lose a child. It's, are you able to talk to anybody about your feelings and about how you, how you're coping with that loss, that immeasurable in, in loss? I'm actually only talking now, like. Someone needs to know why I'm here. Someone needs to know, like... Excuse me. No, no. You know, I even know people that have jobs that live here. They pack up their tent, they go to work, they come back, and, and, and they set up their tent because housing is so expensive. He, he, you know, and this guy make they make money, and they can't even afford a home, and they don't do drugs. You, like it, it, it's just crazy the way the system works. Yes. All right. Yesterday, house one of the people down there is a resident of the tent city. Six p.m. tonight. That is the eviction deadline for the people to pack up and move out from that tent city down there. And Claire asked yesterday, now that moving day is here, what's her plan once 6 o'clock tonight rolls around? I'll probably still be here regardless, you know, without a tent. Without a tent? Yeah. Well, I got all these umbrellas are mine. It's quite rainy today. I mean, it's oh, not a- we were born in water, you know. I'm not going to melt. But I mean... Are you worried about being, like, as the weather changes, would you like to be indoors? Not where I was staying, no. 
I would like to be indoors, yes. So yesterday I know um, that they are planning to move everybody out. So yeah. if they force you out, do you plan to come back here? I'm, I'm just going to sit right here. They can't force me to leave right here. You know? Like, I got nowhere to go. All right, this yesterday house, one of the residents of the tent city. Today is moving day down at Oppenheimer Park, 6 o'clock tonight. That is the deadline for the campers to pack up and move out. There are people here that don't want to have a home. They want they, they want to shoot up. They want to stab each other, shoot each other. And there's people like me that would love to have a home. Like, I have all kinds of appliances you can stick into the wall to cook because I love to cook. I haven't cooked for over three. It's going to be a month, actually, that I haven't been over there. But, like, someone needs to care. You know, we used to work, you know, we paid our taxes. All right, that's one of the many voices down at Oppenheimer Park. That is Yesterday House. Yeah, that's her name, Yesterday House. She is a resident of the tent city down at Oppenheimer Park. Uh, Those residents being told to pack up and move out by 6 p.m. today. Now, that was part of an interview we originally aired on Monday with Yesterday House talking to our Nikki Reitmeyer. And after we first brought you that story, CKNW listeners have been contacting us with offers of donations to help Yesterday get back on her feet. So Nikki went out to Surrey today to meet one of those listeners who wanted to donate some things to her. Here's CKNW listener Carol Bullock. I was listening to the story that you were telling about yesterday, and I just thought, you know, she sounded like a nice lady that was just down on her luck, and if I had some stuff that might give her a helping hand, then I'd be happy to give it to her. So um, that's why. <laughs> I, I go quite often down to the Union Gospel and take clothes and stuff like that, a couple of times a year usually. So I don't know, I think if you've got excess, you might as well just give it to somebody that can use it. So that's why. <laughs> that's very sweet of you. So what are you donating to yesterday today? Okay, so um, I've got a Roots backpack and I filled it with all kinds of little things that she might like that she could use. And then I had another little, um, it's a bag like from a suitcase set that's brand new as well. And I thought maybe somebody else could use it, perhaps her husband or somebody else. That's what I'm giving today. I wish I had a whole bunch more. Okay, that's Carol Bullock, who is a generous CKNW listener who was touched by yesterday's story and wanted to reach out and help her. Now, first thing this morning, uh, Nikki went back down to Oppenheimer Park to try and find yesterday to give her these uh, gifts, but uh, she had some trouble finding her. She had to spend the night in a, uh, she yesterday spent the night in a women's shelter. Uh, Nikki went to three different shelters trying to find her before she finally had to try and uh, help her uh, try and again later. Meanwhile, uh, Claire Allen uh, went down to Oppenheimer Park to speak to the residents when, in a strange twist of fate, this happened. Okay, so just arrived at the park, and now the search for yesterday 2.0, begins again. So get out of the vehicle here, back into the rain. Hopefully, this time, we're actually able to find her. Okay, 
Good to see you. Claire found you, huh? Yeah, yeah. she did. And here I am, all full of umbrellas. It's pouring rain. I'm glad to see that you're staying dry. Yes. Yeah. I got the umbrellas, so yeah. Well, I've got some good news. You heard from Claire as well that listeners heard your story and they felt sad for you. Uh-huh. So as a result, uh, some people reached out and they wanted to help. So here I've got this for you. Uh, this is a, a brand new Roots backpack. Oh, wow. So do you want to open that up? You can look inside. Oh wow. So there's some tea bags in there. Oh, I love tea. <laughs> and then we got some toiletries. Oh my gee. There's a hot water bottle in there for you. There's some drinks. Oh my gee. Oh, this is what I need the most. Toilet paper. <laughs> oh yes. Isn't this nice too? Some some roll-on pain reliever. Oh, oh Dakota. Oh, this would this is perfect. This is wonderful. This is beautiful. I wanna thank everybody. This is very nice. And there's another woman who's trying to arrange to get you a new cell phone as well. Oh. <laughs> that's so kind. I don't ask for anything that's so kind. That, that makes me feel really happy. I don't ask for anything. I'm happy. I love the bag. I love everything here. These are happy tears. And he's going to help me get my life on track. Well, I'm going to help me help him. <laughs> That's the spirit. You got to help. You got to make sure that you're trying too, right? Yes, yes. Now that you know people care, does that inspire you to want to help, help yourself more? Yes, it does. Yes. So yesterday, you know that people care about you. You know that people want to see you do well in the future. When the city officials come today at six o'clock, are you going to go with them to go into housing, to go to a better place? They're actually helping me to get to a better place. Great. Yeah, I just need to to be outside until they get me a, a better place. There's a shelter over there that wants to take me in. Uh, at six o'clock, I can go in and, and, and where I can be safe. Well, you have a whole city full of people who are rooting you on now, yesterday. So we want to see you do good things, okay? Yes, and I am. Like, I'll never turn to drugs. I will not. Like, I'm not that that kind of person. Glad to hear that. Okay, you take care, okay? Thank you. And hopefully Tell we see you soon, but not down here. <laughs> <laughs> Tell everyone I said thank you so much. All right, that's Yesterday House, one of the residents of the tent city. Her story has really touched CKNW listeners this week at 6 p.m. Uh, tonight. That's the eviction uh, high noon there for residents of the tent city. And uh, we'll bring hope, hopefully bring you an update on what happens to her and some of the other people uh, down there as they prepare to move out of the tent city at Oppenheimer Park. It has been going on for months down there, and we continue to follow it for you today. Let's talk ride hailing now. There's long awaited regulations in BC ride hailing out this week. And for people who have been waiting years to get Uber, Lyft, and these other services, they were celebrating because they liked what they saw there. 
There are very wide geographical operating areas for the ride-sharing companies when they're up and running in the fall. And also, most critically, no maximum limit on the number of ride-hailing vehicles allowed on the street. So there'll be no cap on the maximum number of vehicles out there uh, as Uber, Lyft, or these other ride-hailing company cars. That's a good thing from the perspective of Uber and Lyft. That's what they wanted. For the people who want these services, they were happy with that. The taxi companies, though, they're mad as hell. They wanted to see a cap on the maximum number of ride-hailing vehicles on the street. The B.C. government also expressing some concern. Could this lead to traffic, chaos, and gridlock if there's too many Uber and Lyft cars out there looking for rides? Let's check in now with Mike Farnworth. He's the B.C. Solicitor General. Very pleased you can make some time, Minister. Good morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. So, let me let me get your thoughts on on this and with the issue of the caps. You've got some concerns about it, right? Yeah. No, we said that uh, we have some concerns uh, about uh, the fact there was no cap placed uh, by the Passenger Transportation Board in terms of the number of licenses, um, because we note that in one of the areas, you know, around the cruise ship terminal, uh, Canada Place, they did uh, put in place uh, um, a restriction recognizing that uh, congestion and safety was going to be an issue. And that was something that uh, we have been concerned about in terms of, and has uh, one of the issues that's occurred in other jurisdictions, uh, is that you can get some significant congestion uh, taking place. And we felt, uh, our view was it would be much easier to uh, get a better understanding by um, putting a limit on the number of uh, of uh, licenses at the beginning, and then over time, once you, there's the data and, every, and the information is there, you're able to expand it. But the uh, the passenger transportation board is is independent of government, and these are the uh, these are the changes that uh, that they have announced, the policy changes that they've announced. Okay, that's a board, of course, that's appointed by a cabinet order. So couldn't you overrule them? I understand. I take your point that it's independent, but you could fire the board, bring in a new board if you wa- if you really wanted to, couldn't you? Um, well, the board is is independent, and I don't uh, think you just go in and fire a board. Um, you know, when you set somebody up to do a job, you don't go in and fire them, and you said they're independent just to to uh, because you, you you've got some concerns with the decision. Yeah. One of the things that the uh, the passenger transportation board indicated when it made its policy changes is that uh, it would. Uh, uh, be in a position that it would be able to look at some of these issues uh, that have been raised uh, in the future. And that's one of the things that we would like them to do is uh, to review, uh, for example, in four to six months after ride-hailing starts, the data um, around uh, trips, wait times, all of those things in terms of being able to determine, okay, do we have the right number of licenses? Do we need to, to, to put a cap on? That's something that, uh, that, they, that they are able to do. And the requirement in terms of the legislation is, and in terms of ride hailing in British Columbia is you have to uh, um, collect that data that they would need to be able to do that. Okay, most other cities, Minister, do not have a cap on the maximum number of ride hailing vehicles allowed on the street. I understand there are some exceptions. New York, I believe, is one. Mm-hmm. But most other cities, like Toronto, for example, Seattle, other cities like that, there's no cap and there's no problem and there's no traffic gridlock. It seems to work fine. Why are you concerned about the lack of a cap here? Because we are looking at other jurisdictions. Uh, we already know in, in, you know, in, in, in Vancouver uh, and Metro that we can have um, you know, pretty bad gridlock uh, and traffic can get pretty uh, you know, tied up at times. And what we would like to make sure is that that, that is not as much as possible going to be an issue. 
Uh, we know that there are other jurisdictions that are seeing, are, uh, you know, that that is taking place. And, and New York is a, a place that has uh, not the best traffic as well. And they're saying, hang on, um, you know, we need to look at this. Right. So, so this is one of those things where the view of, of government was, look, it's, it's easier to, to, uh, to increase the, the number of licenses over time if you have a cap on, as opposed to saying, okay, trying to perhaps scale back. Okay, but you've already brought in a requirement for a class four mm-hmm. commercial driver's license for ride-hailing uh, drivers. Does that not immediately, drastically cut down the pool of eligible drivers immediately? I mean, isn't that a check or a break on the number of, of potential drivers right even before you start? Well, not necessarily. I mean, we've already seen in Alberta um, that uh, they brought in uh, uh, ride-hailing with Class 4 requirements. There's already around, I think, about 160,000 people in British Columbia who have uh, a Class 4 uh, license uh, already. Um, so yeah. that's not necessarily, um, you know, uh, a break on it. Um, so hmm. what we think is important is that the, the data is collected in four to six months. We'd like to see the transportation, the passenger transportation board look at, uh, look at this issue. Uh, the class four license is also, um, um, you know, the primary reason the class four license is around safety, uh, which we view as critical in terms of the introduction of ride hailing, uh, here in BC. Uh, we know that it, uh, class four licenses, you know, is, is less likely to be engaged in an accident, about 13%, according to the, uh, the stats from, IC, from ICBC. So okay. we think the class four license is important. Speaking to Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, Minister, the taxi industry is mad as hell. They're demanding a meeting with the Premier. They're threatening a lawsuit over this. They say that you guys have broken your promise to them, that you promised them a level playing field. They say you haven't delivered on that. What do you say to the taxi companies? Look, we've worked, I mean, I understand uh, their concerns. Whenever there's change like this, <clears throat> you know, there's, there's, going to be, uh, uh, there's going to be issues. And that's why we've said that uh, we would like the, uh, the Passenger Transportation Board to look at their d- data, uh, review the data around uh, the licensing uh, issue. We think that's important. Um, we've, ex- we've done uh, a lot of work in terms of leveling the playing field. So, for example, uh, there's not been an opportunity to, to increase the supply with 15% more licenses, uh, to be able to use app-based technology. Um, we've brought in a per-trip fee of $0.30, cents, which only applies to ride-hailing companies, not the taxis. Uh, the flag rate uh, for, uh, for ride-hailing companies is the same uh, as that of taxis. Um, so, you know, a lot of work has gone into and a lot of consultation has taken place in terms of trying to ensure um, yeah. that we have a, a, lane field, a level playing field. But we're also aware that there are, there are still uh, concerns. Okay, by the way, when it comes to the, the prices being the same as for taxis, I wonder if you could just clarify one thing. I, I understand that the call-out charge, as it's known, so when you get into the vehicle, the amount that's charged immediately would be the same as, when, as getting into a taxi. Would the per-kilometer charge be the same as taxis? Like, is the price going to be exactly the same as taking a taxi? No, no, no. It's the it's the flag rate, which is the the rate you just described when you get into the taxi. Will okay. be will be the same. Okay, so but, pretty, you, but, but you also they, they, you cannot use discounts to get lower than that either. Okay, okay. So is it gonna is uh, is ride hailing going to be cheaper than taxis overall? Like, is the per kilometer charge potentially well, the, cheaper? The, 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 there are different. There will be differences in the trips. I mean, the ride hailing companies, the taxis are regulated by the price of what they can charge. The ride-hailing companies, apart from that, will be able to do uh, the issues uh, around surge pricing, for example. 
So at high demand, you may well see uh, an Uber or a Lyft or a ride-hailing uh, um, car costing more than a taxi, for example. Wow. Okay, I'm speaking to Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. Minister, while I got you, what's the latest on uh, Surrey Police? You've had that report on the city's desire to transition to a municipal police force and get rid of the RCMP. You've had that report on your desk a long time. What's the status of that? Uh, we're working uh, cooperatively. Uh, my staff are working cooperatively with the, uh, the staff in the, uh, the city of Surrey. And in due course, we will have something uh, to, uh, to say. Why is it taking so long? As I said, you know, there's a, this is a, a very uh, you know, complex issue. There's a lot of work to it. And um, my staff have been working uh, very closely with the, uh, the city of Surrey. And when we're in a position to, uh, to make uh, further comments on, on the status, we will be able to do that. Do you have any concerns about the plan that's been presented to you so far? We're working really well, uh, and that's, uh, that's what uh, I've instructed my staff from the beginning. Surrey staff have been instructed to work, be working with us, and the work that needs to take place is, is, is underway. And right, uh, right now, uh, that's what's happening. Right. I mean, as you approach that review for transitioning to a local police force, I mean, do you start, do you start with a, a desire to give the city what they want? I mean, this is a, a mayor and council that were elected on a promise to, to bring a local police force to the city of Surrey. Is that your starting point, that you want to give them what they want, or are you prepared to say no to them? The, the starting point, of course, is uh, the Police Act and the requirements of the Police Act for whatever community, um, what, whatever a community wants to do. And so there's our, there are statutory obligations as Solicitor General uh, in ensuring that there's a transition plan in place. Um, but the key to that, of course, is uh, my staff and the Surrey staff being able to work on the issues, being able to work on the information that's required uh, when, that's, uh, when, when we're able to, uh, to, to, to move forward on that or to say, okay, here's, what, here's what, uh, what, what's going to happen, then right. we'll be in a position to, to say something. And, you, and you're getting good cooperation from the city, are you? Yes, we're getting good okay. cooperation from the city. Minister, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. All right, I appreciate it. That is Mike Farnworth. He's BC's Solicitor General there weighing in on ride-hailing. You heard him express concerns there about the possibility of too many Uber, Lyft, and other ride-hailing vehicles on the street potentially creating traffic gridlock. He says they want to have a review after four months, maybe scale back the number of ride-hailing vehicles on the street if there are too many. What do you think about that? Phone me on the buzz line and tell me what you think. Let's talk about the changing TV landscape in Canada now. Check this out. Walt Disney getting set to swoop into the Canadian market with a new streaming service Disney Plus that launches in November. Now you know what Disney's got, right? They got everything. They got Marvel, they got Star Wars, they got Pixar, they got it all. They got all the old classics. I don't know, people might be interested in that Disney Plus streaming service. I guess they're going to go head to head with some of these other big streaming services like Netflix, there's all kinds of other ones too now. Crave Amazon Prime, Apple. There are so many of these streaming services now. Kind of tough to get, keep track of them all now. Let's check in with David Friend now, the very fine entertainment reporter at the Canadian Press who's been writing about this this week. Hi, David. Hi, how's it going? Welcome back. Let's talk about Thank Disney+. You. Plus. So uh, Disney+, Plus uh, coming to Canada in November, right? 
Yep, the the wait is over. People have been asking me for months, when is Disney going to set a date for Canada? And it's here. November is the time they're rolling out uh, all those superheroes that people love and those Pixar movies that people can't get enough of. Yeah, is it already up and running in the States? It's not. Um, this is actually going to be launched simultaneously with the U.S., which is pretty right. rare when it comes to the Canadian market. Okay, how much does it cost? Um, the, it's going to be eight ninety nine from the start, which when you think about the other streaming companies, um, at least the big ones, Netflix now runs most people upwards of, uh, you know, 12 to $15 per month. So uh, Disney's coming into Canada with a pretty competitive price point. And I think that means that uh, some of the other streaming companies might get a little bit nervous about that. Okay, $8.99 a month, right? That's right. Okay, and or eighty nine ninety nine a year. So if you want to sign up for the full oh. year, you get a bit of a discount. Okay, eighty nine bucks a year. All right. Okay, you know that might be attractive to people, right? Because they're going to have a lot of content to have there right out of the gate. I, I imagine. Hey, I remember the days when you rented movies and you would go back and have like seventy dollars in late fees. So yeah, oh, yeah. it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was telling my son about that the other day, about the old blockbuster days, and oh man, I used to pay them a lot of money. Okay, yeah, I streaming. used to work there. I took your money. Oh, did you? Okay. Oh, you were the one. All right. Um, okay, so Disney Plus. Why are people so excited about this? Is it just because of the you know the great content they got there? Is that why people are so fired up for it? I think that the Disney brand has a lot of value that uh, so far the streaming companies haven't had um, in that they, there's a history. There's the animated movies. There's the Marvel films. There's the Pixar, as you mentioned. Um, but there's also the Fox catalog. Disney recently oh. re- acquired the 20th Century Fox uh, film studio in Hollywood. So they got all of those classics like Cleopatra and Die Hard and Speed. So um, some of those will show up on the Disney service and they'll sort of be in a rotating license most likely, um, as you see with Netflix where, you know, a movie's there for a year and then it goes away. Okay, does that mean Disney gets like exclusive rights to show those all those products and all those different platforms like Disney and all the Marvel stuff or can other streaming services show those movies too? Generally speaking, the answer would be yes, but um, it gets complicated because licenses churn and Disney might decide to sell the rights to something to another streaming company. I mean, right now, people are pretty familiar with turning to Netflix to watch a lot of Disney movies. That contract is supposed to phase out. It already has in the U.S. and here in Canada, you can still get a lot of the Avengers movies, for example, on there. But it will change in the coming months, and Netflix isn't being all that forthcoming because they're still apparently trying to negotiate the deal behind that. So for Canadians who are you know, wanting to be certain where they're going to turn and to which streaming service they're going to subscribe to get what they want, it will get a little bit confusing. Okay, is Disney Plus, I mean, I got one of these smart TVs at home. Most people have those now, so I can watch Netflix on, on my TV, but you can also... You can also watch streaming services on mobile phones and laptops and that kind of thing. Is Disney Plus going to work that way too? Or they they be able to watch it on multiple different uh, devices? Yeah, that's what surprised me. Uh, out of the gate, a lot of the other services sort of rolled out over d- several months on different devices. Disney's coming out on pretty much every device, I think, except the Amazon Fire Stick from the get-go. So whether you have your Roku or your smart TV, you should be able to get the Disney Plus app. Okay, speaking of David Friend from the Canadian Press about uh, the new Disney Plus streaming service. So this is getting to be a bit of a crowded marketplace here, David. Like Netflix, are they still number one? Do they dominate this? 
They do. Um, but you know who we haven't mentioned yet is Apple, because they're going to be launching their own Apple TV Plus service, oh. uh, most likely later this year. And they're loading that with a bunch of marquee titles, too. Um, one of the ones they're really proud of right now is the Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Aniston drama that takes place on the set of a morning show, and it's appropriately called The Morning Show. So they're piling millions of dollars into a service that they hope will get people subscribing as well. Okay, I've heard of Apple TV, but what what is Apple TV Plus? It's like is Apple TV now is that a streaming service or what is that? Apple TV. No, um well it is. It's sort of a it's basically a, a hub that you use to get a lot of other streaming services and you can also use oh. iTunes on there to rent. But this is going to be effectively um a higher level version of that where you will pay a monthly fee to get a bunch of new shows, a lot like Netflix. But some of the details aren't all that clear yet, and we don't have a launch date, but we know it's coming, and Apple tends to save its biggest announcements for September, so I would expect we'll get some more details in early September on what they're planning to do there. Okay, so we got Disney+, Plus, Apple TV+. Plus. What are some of the other major streaming services out there? Amazon Prime Video, yep. Netflix, don't forget Crave here in Canada. That's where all the HBO, Stars, and Showtime content goes. Yep. Um then there's all the niche ones like the Criterion Channel where you get your art house movies and all the classics that Netflix doesn't stock. Um, there's, there's so many of them. I mean, for the average person, I think if you want to pay for all of these, you're already paying what you used to for cable. And that's not even considering sports programming like the zone which is a streaming service for a lot of sport wow. uh, different sports events and so i mean you, yeah that that is your cable bill effectively these days well yeah i was starting to do the math on it myself because you start paying you know nine bucks a month for disney and you're paying with 12 a month or so for netflix i mean it does start to add up if you want all of these streaming services uh, at once so i guess consumers have got to pick and choose and and then i guess you got to weigh it against a cable bill right like is are all these streaming services is that a threat to traditional cable i think already many people have cut their cable or they've at least scaled it back and i i would imagine when disney comes out later this year um i spoke to a few analysts who believe the pressure is going to be on cable companies because a lot of families who have you know hung on to cable for all the kids programming now have a new option so I guess that remains to be seen, but yeah, the pressure is going to be there, and as these price, as the price competition ramps up, it could become even more on the cable company. Yeah, like I've heard of some people, like I would never cut my cable cord because I need like local television program, local news content, and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So I I need my cable for sure. But some people are like, well, I'm not. Maybe I won't cut the cable cord, but I'll sh- I'll shave the cord. Have you ever heard of that expression? Oh, I'm going to shave the cord. Yeah, stripping it back to basically the the channels you need and none of the extras. I mean, for years, people paid for, you know, the book channel or something that they didn't ever watch, but, you know, three bucks on their bill and they kind of forgot about it. But um, with so much competition out there now, I'm I'm starting to see some streaming services changing their minds. And YouTube has done something like that uh, recently. They're they're planning in, in the coming month to take down the paywall on their original content. So for for a while, you could only watch things like the Karate Kid show, Cobra Kai, uh, with the paywall. So you would you know do what you do with Netflix and pay a monthly fee. But now that wall is going to effectively come down so that you can watch it now with commercials in it. And that's the oh. other phase of streaming is, are these new services that are free, but they have ads in the middle of the programming. Okay, how is Netflix doing? Are they still like just chugging along, making 
reap some money or are they struggling or starting to struggle a little bit with all this competition? I don't know if I would say struggling, but we have seen in their most recent results that subscriber growth is really starting to subside. And I think it right. depends on what region you're looking in, but Netflix has anticipated this competition for years. You, you saw them bulk up on original content. And you probably remember a couple of years ago when you looked on this service and there were more shows than you ever imagined. And you, there were many that Netflix made you hadn't even heard of. Well, they've been doing that for a reason. And it's to make a case to subscribers that there's so much Netflix content that you can't get elsewhere because shows like Friends, for example, grabbed headlines earlier this year where in the U.S., Warner Brothers said they're taking it back and it's no longer going to be on Netflix. Viewers were angry about that, and Netflix doesn't want to make their subscribers frustrated. Right, right. I know they want to keep people happy, but I have heard people complain about Netflix like, you know, sometimes you turn on your Netflix and the movie or the TV show that you wanted to watch or you thought was there is gone, it's not available now, or I can't get it, or how come a Netflix subscriber in the United States can watch different content for me in Canada? Mm -hmm. yeah, I can understand why people, people are frustrated because of licensing, and a lot of that comes down to uh, regional licensing. So, for example, Netflix will buy the rights to a show in the U.S., but they can't get them in Canada because CTV paid for the rights. Those sorts of things, I think, are going to frustrate Canadians more and more as these streaming services start to wage wars against each other. Um, here's one example. CBS All Access, it's a streaming service in Canada and the U.S., but it launched right. in the States on the show Star Trek Discovery. So everyone heard that it was coming to CBS All Access, but if you subscribe to it in Canada, you don't get that show because Crave purchased the rights to it a couple of years ago and airs it, um, it airs on TV, and then it goes to the Crave streaming service. So I think you're going to see that more often for marquee shows in Canada where people just don't know where to look or who to pay for to get it. That could get frustrating, and I think some Canadians might turn back to piracy for those, mm. for those reasons. Okay, it's a great time to be uh, a TV fan for sure. I mean, I've, I've heard that people say this is like peak TV. This is like the best, best it's ever been for content and the number of shows. I mean, you could binge your binge watch your whole life away. Do you think you know, I thought uh, we hit peak TV years ago? I keep hearing this. Well, now we're at peak TV again. Is is there at some point that they kind of reach like a critical mass or like a high water mark that you just how do you keep producing all this new content with so many different streaming services all competing against each other? Yeah, I think a lot of uh, Hollywood producers have been wondering that question for a few years now. Are you know are we putting piling money into shows that you know no one's seeing because they don't have time? I mean, we're human beings. We yeah. haven't we haven't earned more hours in the day. It's still the same amount of time and the same eyeballs that effectively are watching these shows. Um, I don't know where peak TV is. I think the, the general consensus for a while was that we'd hit it a few years ago, but it just yeah. keeps growing and growing. There's seems to be no end in sight. Yeah. I love it. Bring it on. Keep it going. It's good stuff. <laughs> David, thanks for coming I don't on. Watch this stuff. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's your job. That's your job. <laughs> David, thank you for coming on, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. David Friend, he's the very fine entertainment reporter at the Canadian Press with that uh, new streaming services coming to Canada. Let's give you an update right now on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, some breaking developments on the big this controversial project. Trans Mountain today has issued notice to proceed directives to some of its biggest construction contractors. That means 
It's time to put shovels in the ground. The initial workforce to build the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project is set to get underway again. The company put out a news release uh, today saying that construction will start uh, very, very soon in Alberta along the right-of-way between Edmonton and Edson, Alberta. Also in the greater Edmonton area, construction about to begin very quickly. But in now, there's not going to be a lot of controversy in Alberta about the pipeline. It's got very broad support, of course. But right here in British Columbia, yeah, they're set to start construction again as well. An immediate return to work at the Burnaby Terminal on land at the Westridge Marine Terminal. That is going to start very soon. So the company getting set to put the pipe in the ground. Let's check in with Keith Baldry now, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. I'm pleased you could join us. Hi, Keith. Hey, Mike. What do you think about this notice from the company? They're getting ready to start construction here. Yeah, totally expected. August was the time we were given the indication that this is when contractors were going to be contacted. Uh, and they've got 30 days to respond to these uh, directives from uh, Trans Mountains. So we're talking, uh, Trans Mountains says that at one point later this year, there will be 4,200 people working along the route in various communities. As you mentioned, construction starts in, in the Edmonton area and at the terminals in Burnaby. Uh, right. So that's ground zero for protests. I expect that's going to start again with uh, Ernest, and that's going to be one of the dominant stories of the fall, uh, coinc- uh, coinciding, of course, with the federal election. So it's going to thrust this issue right into the election campaign. Okay, could this be a big key issue in the election this fall, especially in British Columbia? Well, poll after poll shows that the pipeline has roughly 60% support uh, versus, you know, 40% opposition. So it's going to, it's gonna, I think, play differently in different communities. It'll be interesting in the Burnaby uh, Seymour riding where the terminus is. Uh, the, the Liberals currently hold that with Terry Beach being the MP. Sven Robinson right. is running against him for the NDP. Uh, I would still say the odds favor the Liberals of holding that seat, but uh, the tanker traffic issue is a big issue for many people. Uh, but the Liberals have won all the ridings in which those tankers would, would sail past were won by Liberals with some pretty hefty margins of victory. We're talking tens of thousands of people. You know, Vancouver Centre, which is where the tankers go, right through under the uh, Lionsgate Bridge, Hetty Fry there, you know, she yep. won by 20,000 votes. So right. I, I just don't see there being enough opposition to this to turn into a groundswell of voters, uh, you know, chucking Liberals out of office, particularly when the Conservatives are just as much in favor of this project as the Liberals are, in fact, probably more so. So I'm not sure the NDP and Greens are strong enough to sort of get the anti-tanker vote and turn it into seats. Okay, Trans Mountain may be saying they're ready to start construction and get that pipe in the ground, Keith, but of course the, f- the fight never ends. The environmental groups that are opposed uh, to the pipeline, some First Nations, not all of them I would stress, but some no. First Nations who are opposed this this project, they say they're going to continue the, the fight in court and elsewhere. What's the latest on that? There's still court cases going on to try and stop this pipeline project? You know, I think there's still a, a court challenge by some First Nations to this. Yeah. Uh, Burnaby, the city of Burnaby keeps trying different ways as well. Uh, blocking this, but they've lost more than 20 times in court. So, you know, this project has been sort of victorious in courts with one exception, was that Court of Appeal decision that said you did not consult with First Nations adequately. So we'll see if this current round or this this latest round of consultation meets the test that the court had desired. Uh, But there's going to be ongoing litigation against this. But Ian Anderson, the CEO of of Trans-Malcolm, making it clear, even with all that happening, 
uh, construction will begin. And, and again, Trans Mountain has a pretty good track record in court, and they'll seek an injunction. I think the injunction is maintained in place, actually, that they originally uh, got against the protesters, and I assume that's going to be enforced again the moment people show up at the Burnaby Terminal or the Westwich uh, Marine Terminal right. to try again have a blockade or a protest. Okay, you got the Justin Trudeau government's gone all in on this project. Of course, they actually bought the thing. And so you got Trans Mountain saying, we're gung-ho, we're ready to start construction and get the pipe in the ground. The B.C. government under John Horgan still officially opposed to the project. What is the B.C. government? Can they do anything to stop this, this pipeline from going in the ground now? Not the pipeline, and John Horgan's admitted that they can't actually stop the pipeline from being built. But of course, uh, they're, they're they're sort of challenging sort of constitutional issues. So, who's got jurisdiction over what can flow through that pipeline? So, uh, they've got sort of a tepid court challenge to this. The the notion that the NDP government was going to go all in to block this thing, I think, sort of faded away almost from the get go of them taking power in uh, in BC. They they're not joining. A lot of the court challenges, I mean, they have been party to interveners on a couple, but you don't see the proverbial lie down in front of the bulldozer uh, rhetoric coming from the NDP. I, I think this is an issue. They simply don't like, even like to talk about this issue. They'd rather talk about other issues. This is sort of a, a no-win for them because there's many people in the NDP who support the pipeline, only the people are going to be working on it. Okay, speaking of people who would lie down in front of a bulldozer, I wonder if that might be the only way that this thing gets stopped because I think it's they're going to continue to win in court, they've had some delays in some court cases, but I think largely uh, the project is going to go forward. It's not going to get stopped by the courts, but could people stop it on the ground through mass protests, people lying down in front of bulldozers, being taken away in paddy wagons? I mean, I remember covering the Clackwood Sound, lo- yeah. uh, Sound blockades many, many years ago and just watching hundreds, like literally hundreds of people get arrested. Yeah. Could the same thing happen here? Oh, sure. I think, uh, first of all, the, the protest at the Burnaby Mountain is very easy to get to. In fact, you just get on the on the uh, SkyTrain, the Millennium Line. It's actually near the Global Station in Burnaby. Uh, you get off uh, the uh, the station at Lake City, which I take to when I go to Global Station. You just walk up the hill, and you're going to be at that protest camp. So it's much more accessible to protesters than the Clackwood Sound protest was, because, you know, that was very remote. So I think you're going to see hundreds of people arrested for civil disobedience. Will that be enough to stop the pipeline? I'm not convinced that's the case. It's not like the Clackwood Sound protest ended the forest industry. It just changed the way logging was done in some areas of the province. It didn't really have a huge impact. And again, this right. civil disobedience that's coming up here is going to be theatrical, get a lot of publicity, but ultimately I don't see it changing the government's mind in terms of building this thing. Okay, does that does that create kind of a political gut check time for a guy like Justin Trudeau who supports this pipeline if we start seeing TV images of, I don't know, native elders getting hauled away to being arrested at a pipeline protest? Oh, I think Trudeau likes to see himself as uh, tough and uh, and uh, stand his ground and i think he's going to continue to do that i if if he were to fold on this thing and, uh, and, you know, fold his hand and cave here, I think he'd look terrible because he'd be abandoning everything he said he stood for. The other thing to keep in mind that's playing out here, Mike, is there are competing bids from First Nations consortiums who want to buy this pipeline. If it, yeah. Down the road, if this ends up being owned by First Nations who have bought it as a, as a key economic lever to help their own people get out of poverty, I think that changes the narrative very quickly here. It makes it that much more difficult to oppose it. Keith, thanks for coming on. All right, anytime. Okay, we continue to follow that very closely. Once again, the Trans Mountain Company putting out a release today. Let me share with you now an extremely sad story that has a hopeful element as well. It's the story of 23-year-old Madeline Stroop, who very tragically died in hospital earlier this month after she had been severely injured 
in a car crash on Friday. Her family got word from BC Transplant that her organs were used to save the lives of five other people, which is absolutely amazing. Now Madeline's mom is encouraging other people to consider signing up to become an organ donor. Tara Stroop is Madeline's mother, and she joins me now. Hi, Tara. Hi. Tara, thank you for coming on. First of all, I just want to say to you, please accept my sympathies on your loss. I mean, this is just an, for any parent like myself, this is an unfathomable kind of thing to, to experience. So I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you. But I do, I'm, I think it's amazing the way you're speaking up about this issue. Let's talk a little bit about Madeline first, if you don't mind. Tell me what happened. Like in, in the, She was injured in a car crash back in July, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, Madeline was on her way to the family cabin with her boyfriend, Hayden, and their friend, Ty, uh, who was in the back seat. And they got hit by a, a driver who ran a stop sign. Oh. Um, full impact um, to the front um, of the vehicle that they were driving, and Hayden was killed on impact, and Madeline suffered severe head trauma and was airlifted to Royal Columbian Hospital. Oh, my goodness. And I understand she was in a, a coma for several days. She, Yes, she was in a coma right away, and then, um, yes, and then she was kept in a coma uh, while they tried to reduce the swelling and give her medication to to get her through, um, and she she did pretty good for the first few days, but um, I think it was about the fourth or fifth day that um, it was just the swelling got too much, and she was declared brain dead on August the second. Tara, I'm so sorry for your loss. I mean, it's absolutely tragic. Um... Tell me about the news that you received about the organ donation. Had uh, had Madeline signed up to be an organ donor? She did, and we didn't know that. So wow. on the Tuesday, um, we had a, a really tough meeting with the doctors at the hospital, and they just said um, basically that if Maddie's numbers didn't lower, that there was a high chance that Maddie wouldn't be the Maddie that we knew and loved. And so at that point, uh, we were all in the room together, her sisters and her brother and her dad and I and her grandma, Pat. And uh, we received this news, and right away I said, is she able to donate her organs then? Because um, we knew this was something Maddie would want because we had been through a very personal journey with a friend of the family, Joanne, who was Krista's best friend. And Maddie had seen this, and we just, I just knew in my heart that that was what Maddie would have wanted. And so we made the decision um, to donate her organs at that point. And then the next day when we met with the organ transplant people, they pushed a piece of paper across the table, and lo and behold, it was her, in her writing, um, saying that she she had already signed up. So we were just... Wow. It was amazing. It was such an amazing feeling because it just validated that what we already knew, but it was helpful because her dad did have reservations as dads would, of course, to the thought of, you know, um, her not, I don't know. Anyhow, it was was just a a good validation for him to make sure that... I'm sure that was reassuring to you to know and to your whole family to know that these were her wishes, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How how does someone... uh, sign up to be an organ donor? 
Well, you can do it online, or you can do it, there's hard copies that you can get and send in by mail. Mm-hmm. Um, but the easiest way is to do it online. Um, we're going to be having the donor cards at our service for Maddie, and um, hope that maybe other people can have that idea as well, because less than 1% are actually even able to donate. Um, so mm-hmm. the more people that um, are able to, the better off other people are going to be. And like I said, we've seen the other side where um, Joanne in her, you know, mid-20s was basically dying. Um, Her, you know, her eyes were deep yellow. Her stomach was extended. She couldn't eat. She couldn't walk. She could barely, she had no energy to do anything. And she needed a liver. And somebody, uh, thank goodness, somebody um, donated a liver that worked for her. And now she's a vibrant young lady. And and she's an advocate on behalf of the Organ Transplant Society. This is, she's a friend of your family, I think you said? Yes, yeah, she's the best yeah. friend of our oldest daughter, Krista. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, I understand you received a letter from BC Transplant about Madeline's organs that were donated, and I, I, I hear they've helped a lot of other people. Tell me yes. about that. It was an amazing, amazing moment for us. We were driving... Uh, to go work on the video for her service. And my husband was driving, and I was in the passenger seat, and my daughter, Janelle, was in the back seat. And we opened our letters, um, our mail. Of course, we've been behind in doing everything. So um, slowly opening the mail, and uh, there was one from the BC Transplant Organization. And um, I just opened it up, and it was an absolutely beautifully written letter telling us that... um, their condolences on the death of our daughter and the fact that she now, because of Madeline's generous gift, five lives in BC are now um, are now hopeful with with her her organs. So wow. we were. It just made us feel good at a moment when it's the deepest, darkest moment you could possibly imagine, and so that at least gave us some purpose in all of this. And it's it's definitely what Madeline would have wanted. So. Wow, that's incredible. I, I, can, I can understand how that would give you a little comfort for sure. I mean, which, uh, so where did her organs go? Like, which organs were donated? She donated her heart, which is that lucky person has, um, has her heart. Wow. And she was able to donate her liver, uh, her two kidneys, and her islet cells from her pancreas for cell transplant. So uh, wow. five people now have a new lease on life because of, Madeline, and she would just be so proud, and we're we're proud and humbled by her, by her courageous journey and and what she's mm-hmm. been able to do. So, we just we really want to advocate on behalf of um, this amazing, you know, need for organs and right. talk to people and let them know, have conversations with your your loved ones, with your young, especially young people, because a lot of you know it's very difficult, but at the same time it's so rewarding and. We'll be able to write a letter on behalf of the family telling these people about who Maddie was and how lucky they are to have a little piece of her inside of them, and it gives us some comfort. Can you tell me a little bit about Madeline? What would you like, what would you like those, the recipients of those organs to know about her? She was just, she was a quiet, sweet, gentle, loving, thoughtful um, but silly and adventurous girl, and she, she was, she was honestly the most thoughtful person ever. She would just come up and quietly do things when she knew she could sense somebody was struggling. 
she was a mental health care worker for Fraser Health, and even her profession speaks to who she was. She just wanted to help people. And, and this is just so poignant now that the fact that she's helping people even in her death. And, and we want this to be her legacy. We want people to know how lucky they are to have her in them and, and know that, my goodness, she was just so special and, and just a sweet, sweet girl, a, a fabulous auntie to her nieces and nephew. Um, she took a week off holiday to, at the age of 21 to babysit her nieces and nephews so her sister could go on her honeymoon. And I mean, that, that's the, her one niece was only one. So she's, she was just a giving, kind girl, and, and we just will miss her dearly. Goodness, that's that is sad, but a hopeful kind of element to the story with the donation. For you mentioned that Madeline had signed up to be an an organ donor. That's the way the system works here in BC, right? You, if you want to be an organ donor, you have to consent, like you have to sign up to be an organ donor, right? Yes. Yeah. So, what do you think about this this new idea to instead of going to an an opt in system where you sign up to be an organ donor you could have you could switch we could maybe switch in british columbia to an opt-out system some other jurisdictions have this where if someone does die and they are a candidate for organ donation that maybe their organs would automatically be available for donation unless they had formally opted out of the program and there's a new poll out on this it says 66 percent of BC residents kind of like that idea, an opt-out system. What do you think of that? I actually think it's a great idea. Um, mm. The only things I would uh, be cautious about would be cultural sensitivities or, or religious beliefs. That sure. would be the only yeah. thing. And if, if everybody um, everybody in a family was to go at once, then that could certainly be a limiter. But beyond that, I think it's a great idea. And I think... Um, that more people should be doing things like that, like our province should be advocating on behalf of that, because it is so needed. A lot of people need organs, and because you have to opt in, it's actually not difficult, but people just don't think about it. And why would you? When you're a young person, or if you, even if you're an infant, it's the parents. Why would they think about that? So this would just make yeah. it a whole lot easier, and, and why wouldn't you want to save a life? Like, it wouldn't right. even, you know... Right, absolutely, and and you mentioned like not everyone is a is a candidate. In fact, a minority of people would actually be a candidate for organ donation. I mean, I imagine it's typically someone who's young and healthy, right? I mean, Madeline yes. was what tw- twenty three years old and yeah. a young, young, healthy woman. Yes, and it's less yeah. than one percent can even donate because wow. it has to be the right circumstance. Like um, Maddie was able to, and it was almost like a, um, it was almost like ironic that you know she'd been through this we know she would want it and right. and she was in the right um it was the right circumstance for her to be able to donate and she was young and healthy and and so it but less than one percent so i mean that alone means that there's such a need for them and especially with young healthy people tara i'm very sorry once again for your loss uh this is absolutely tragic what's happened to you and your family with the loss of your daughter but I'm really amazed at your your courage and and strength and kind of standing up and telling us the story today and encouraging others to sign up for organ donation. I think that's a really important message. Well, thank you. And I I really believe it's Maddie that's giving me the strength. Mm. 
right now. I honestly believe it's her giving me the strength to be able to do this on her behalf, and it's the least I could do for her. So I thank you for um, also doing this for us because I, I think it's a very important subject. All right, Tara, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. All right, that is Tara Stroop. She is the mom of 23-year-old Madeline Stroop, who you, know, you heard the story there. She died in hospital after a car crash earlier this month. The family getting some comfort with that letter from the BC Transplant Society that her organs were used to help save the lives of five other people. That's incredible. And Tara encouraging other people to sign up to become organ donors. Now, you heard our discussion there about whether we should go to an opt-out system for organ donation. So in other words, if you don't want to be an organ donor, you would have to sign up for that instead of the other way around. Right now, it's an opt-in system. New data out today shows more and more British Columbians drowning in debt. They can't afford to pay the bills. Many people are just one or two paychecks away from financial collapse. That's backed up by some disturbing new statistics. The number of British Columbians filing for insolvency is up 11% this year. That's according to the province's superintendent of bankruptcy. Meanwhile, take a look at these debt numbers here. This is really bad, especially in the city of Vancouver, which carries some of the highest non-mortgage debt load in the country. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Scott Hanna. He's the president of the Credit Counseling Society of BC. Scott, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Okay, first of all, let's talk about these insolvency numbers. What is insolvency? Is that the same thing as bankruptcy? It's part of it. There's uh, two different options under the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act. You can make an assignment into bankruptcy if you don't have the ability to meet your obligations, or you can put forward a proposal, commonly called a consumer proposal to your creditors, where you offer to repay a portion of your debt over a period of time with your creditor's approval. Wow, okay, so what do those numbers tell you that that's up 11% this year? It just says that the, you know, the state of the individual's uh, household economy is not getting better. It's getting worse. And when we look at wow. the, the amount of debt that uh, we're carrying in this province, and especially in the, in the city of Vancouver, where we're leading all the major cities in Canada with an average of just over $39,000 of non-mortgage debt, it just says that uh, we're really having a difficult time meeting our living expenses and repaying our obligations. Okay, that's even though we were told we've got a pretty strong economy here in British Columbia. You know, that's, that's misleading. I think, you know, the economy that matters most to most individuals is their own personal economy. Right. Sure, you can hear that the unemployment rate is low, but if you don't have the means in which to meet your expenses, and certainly housing costs in our major centers are really expensive and really taking a big bite out of individuals' paychecks, yeah. it's really tough to, to stay ahead or at least stay even. Yeah, does that reflect the high cost of living, and especially in a city like Vancouver? It does. When you see yeah. the increase here and the fact that debt levels were carrying, we're saying that to what we see and, and uh, look at these numbers, it says that we're having a hard time keeping up and we're utilizing debt as a means to cover our shortfall until we reach the point where we can't anymore and may be faced with looking at insolvency as a solution. Okay, let's talk about some of the debt load that people are carrying, Scott. I mean, that was an eye-popping number there you just mentioned there. What's the average debt load in Vancouver? Uh, $39,000 of non-mortgage debt. Whoa. 39000 Wow. 
that's a lot uh, in terms of having you know debt outstanding on credit cards, lines of credit, car loans. And when you compare it to our, our second most expensive city in Canada for housing, Toronto, they're at around 30000 so a full 30% lower than where oh. we're at in B.C. So it really says, hmm, we're having, a, we're having a tough time here. Okay, so that doesn't include mortgages, like you said. Like, you know, a lot of people obviously got a big mortgage, but that's backed up by your house. But what about a line of credit? Do, don't a lot of people use their house to get a line of credit? Lots of people do uh, <clears throat> as a means of financing their expenses. And, and, you know, over the years when when the economy has been strong, interest rates have been low, it's been relatively easy for someone to get a, a home equity line of credit and utilize that yeah. line of credit. But the challenge, of course, is that with lines of credit and credit cards having a relatively low minimum payment requirement, it means you can accumulate a fair amount of debt in a short period of time and not realize uh, the financial trouble you're getting yourself into. Okay, credit card debt can be really brutal, right? What's what's the typical interest rate charged by the credit card companies these days? Typically, it's around 19.9%. Uh, Ooh. And when, of course, you've got the option to pay it in full, and we always advocate that credit cards should be used for safety and convenience, but what we're seeing, the trend is that more and more Canadians, at least half of us, are carrying a balance on our credit cards, and on average... We owe just a little over $4,200 on bank credit cards. Right. I always laugh when I get my own credit card bill. I try to pay that off every month if I can, you know, because you don't want to carry that balance and pay those exorbitant interest rates. But, you know, you always look at the bottom line in that credit card bill and it says, here's your minimum payment, you know, maybe thousands of dollars in the minimum payments. Like, oh, you know, it's okay. Just pay us like 20 bucks or something. You know, they, there's always like a very low minimum payment because it's almost like they don't want you to pay it back because they're, they're making so much money on the interest rate. Well, that they do, but you know, there's been a real shift in terms of minimum payments over the years. So if we go back you know, a couple of decades, the, the average minimum payment on a credit card was 5%. And certainly uh, the province of Quebec introduced legislation this year whereby they're going to get those minimum payments back up to 5% over a number of years. Right. And the end result will be, well, it might be a little difficult for consumers to increase their minimum payments now, it also means that the amount of debt they'll be carrying in the future will be less. And that's a good thing yeah. for consumers. Yeah, right. So if you bring in a higher minimum payment, maybe that would you know, encourage people to pay off those credit card bills. I mean, do you think we should do that in B.C. as well? Like maybe have a higher mandatory minimum payment on a credit card bill? Well, I tell you, we, the governments at all levels have been uh, sounding the alarm, bell for, uh, alarm bells for years that we need to get our debt under control and it's not happening. Yeah. You know, I think that um, our province and other provinces should take a serious look at this. When you look at the implications of just paying a minimum payment of 2%, and with an average interest rate of 19.9, that equates to that the interest charges alone on your minimum payment are 1.67%. So at most, you're paying 0.33 of 1% towards your principal. It's not going to get no. the job done. You're going to be in debt for decades. No, you, t- pay your, you spend your whole life trying to pay that off. If you just pay and, the minimum. And many people carry debt for, for long periods of time. So, you know, if you're for the, the good of your financial well being and your future self, you need to have a plan that says, I gotta get out of debt. Okay, and I know that's what you guys do there over at the Credit Counseling Society of BC, right? So like if someone comes to you and say, Oh man, like I'm just I'm totally in hawk on these credit cards, they're killing me. What's your first piece of advice if people have got those credit card debts? Well, the first thing, even before they look at how am I going to pay this back or what's the best way to deal with this situation, is having a real thorough look at how much money is coming into the household 
and more yeah. importantly, where's it going? Where can we scale back? Um, if we're not saving for, for annual or seasonal expenses, we need to factor that into our budget. So we, the job we do first off is help a person get back to an even state with the fact that the funds they have coming in their paychecks are covering off their monthly, seasonal, and annual expenses. So we're not having to use debt to service that. Once we're at that stage, then we're looking at other opportunities to say, where can we scale back to address your debt situation? And what's the best way to address your, yeah, address your situation? Certainly, if you've got high-rate interest credit cards, you've got to find a way to either consolidate that uh, at a much lower rate. If that's not possible, we may be able to help a client restructure their debts and get interest waived. But it really depends upon the person's circumstances, whether or not they own a home, have a lot of equity they could use. But we find that many consumers look at consolidating their debts, but unless they address their overall financial picture, ensure they're living with their means, and managing with a budget. And budget's not a four-letter word. Well, actually, this we call it a plan. Have a plan for how you're going to spend your money. Right. You're susceptible to having future problems again. What if someone's a homeowner, if they're fortunate enough to own a home, and we've seen the home values in British Columbia go up dramatically here? Do some people, are, do they get tempted to kind of, well, they see how much their home is worth, so I can spend more money. I can borrow against that home and just get sort of like, you know, just almost like taking money out of your home value. Well, that was a, a real growing problem up until uh, change in terms of how people qualified for homes and, and when we saw our housing prices uh, scale back. Many people had the, uh, the perspective of, so what if I spend $50,000 of my home equity each year? My home is going up uh-huh. by $100,000, so I'm still yeah. uh, $50,000 ahead. Right. That's not the same anymore, and so that perspective uh, has to change. And regardless if you've got a lot of equity in your home or not, you have to ask yourself, do I have the cash flow to service it? What should people do with those? What should people do with those credit cards, Scott? Cut them up. Somebody told me once, put them in the freezer. <laughs> well, you know, for a lot of people, that that um, uh, I think it's a matter of really uh, getting rid of the temptation. And the best way to get rid of the temptation is really have some solid goals and objectives. Why do I want to put my credit cards away? Why do I want to pay off my debt? What's in it for me? And for a lot of people, you've got to answer that question. Whether it's I want to be able to retire and maintain a reasonable standard of living, help my kids with an education, or just have the comfort at night that I can sleep because I don't have debt. Scott, thanks for coming on. All right, take care. Yeah, thank you. Scott Hanna, he's the president of the Credit Counseling Society of BC on rising debt and insolvency levels.